On April 26th of 1986, the world experienced the worst ever nuclear disaster. It occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant located in the Ukraine. Reading from an article I recently came across, apparently immediately after the meltdown, dozens of people died, as many of you know. Thirty years later, the number of lives lost to the plant's radiation lies somewhere in the tens of thousands, as this article mentions. But if it were not for the work of three very brave men whose story is just now being told, millions of lives would have been lost instead. You see, ten days after the Chernobyl meltdown, the engineers learned of a new threat, the threat of a nuclear steam explosion. Uh, the plant's water cooling system had failed, and so a, a pool had formed directly under the highly radioactive reactor. With no way to cool the reactor, it was going to be a matter of time before this lava-like substance melted through the remaining barriers that prevented a nuclear disaster. And it would have dropped this reactor's core into this pool of water. And if this had happened, it would have set off a steam nuclear explosion, firing radiation high and wide into the sky and spreading across parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa. As the Soviet physicists mentioned, as one of them mentioned, our experts studied the possibility and concluded that the explosion would have been in the force of three to five megatons. The city of Minsk, which was a major city, which was 320 kilometers away from Chernobyl, would have been utterly obliterated. And all of Europe pretty much would have been rendered uninhabitable because of the nuclear radiation fallout. But three brave men volunteered to dive under the plant and re release this critical pressure valve. They knew the location of where it was. These three men were not forced to go on this trip. They were told they could refuse this assignment. But as one of these plant workers mentioned, how can I not go in when I know where these valves are located? And in a story that can certainly be made into a movie, if you were to read about these three men, it was really a miracle that they could release this pressure valve. They did so in time, and in doing so, saved the world from a disaster that could have been exponentially worse than the initial explosion. Without the work of these three Russian men, a nuclear explosion would have taken place, turning hundreds of square miles into an inhabitable radioactive wasteland. Unfortunately for these men, by the time they surfaced from under the reactor, all three were already showing signs of severe radiation poisoning. Tragically, none of them survived for more than a few weeks. What makes their action unique in comparison, perhaps, to the first responders who rushed in to put out the fire was that they knew the risk. They knew the risk of going in. They knew they would not come out alive. We often use heroes in the loosest of terms, and yet these three men are heroes for sure. They died knowing they would save lives. They died saving the lives of potentially millions of people. Because of the embarrassment of this disaster, the former Soviet Union didn't want many of their stories to be told. They minimized what happened at Chernobyl. 
And from my own research, I don't think there are any monuments that commemorate the heroic actions of these three. Now, there are some generic statues of first responders who rush to the scene, but little in terms of recognizing the role of these three until recently when uh, stories are now coming out of people whose actions saved the lives of so many. In response, if you were one of those who lived in the area of Chernobyl and you knew that these three men had saved your life, would you not be demanding for some sort of commemoration, some sort of memorial, something to ensure that we remember what they did? In the very same way, when it comes to Jesus Christ, putting his life on the line for us, for dying on our behalf, what are the responses that come out of our life in view of what he did? This morning, we want to take a look at four responses on the day that Jesus died. And they are recounted in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, as we take a look at verses 44 to 56. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 56, as we conclude our sermon series entitled, Imperfect. And what a wonderful passage to conclude this series. Because imperfect people who can be made perfect in Jesus Christ must have the proper response to the death of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44. And now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last If you remember from two weeks ago, as Jesus was dying on the cross, what was he doing? He was thinking about us, he was forgiving us, and he was saving us. But to save us, Jesus had to die, because he was dying in our place. But a holy God could have nothing to do with sin. And so Jesus had to experience death which means separation. Jesus Christ had to be separated from the Father. Now, how this all works out in the Trinity and for Jesus to remain God, our human minds cannot comprehend. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 46, it is recorded him saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father could not look upon his Son because the sins of the world were placed upon this sacrificial lamb. And then we notice in Luke's account that it was Jesus who initiated this process when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. Jesus voluntarily gave of his own life and took upon the sins of the world, past, present, and future. Because as God... No man could physically kill Jesus. You know, when I teach theology, I've often asked the question, who killed Jesus? The answers I get range from Judas to the Pharisees to Pontius Pilate. And while they all had a part in his death, technically no human person could have killed Jesus because he is God. He was the perfect God-man. 
And so God had to give up of his own life and to die for us so that it could not be said that Jesus was forced to die for us. It is made quite clear that Jesus volitionally, voluntarily, willingly died on our behalf because of his unconditional love for us. And so he experienced separation from God, called death, something that had never happened from eternity past and will never happen in eternity future. And at that moment of death, the sins of the world was placed upon Jesus, and he died on our behalf. So momentous an occasion that the Bible tells us from the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, to the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., there was darkness over the entire city of Jerusalem. If you were there, you would have recognized that something significant was happening that day. Further, Luke writes that the, in the temple, uh, the curtain was that, that separated in the temple the holy place and the holy of holies was torn from the top to the bottom, symbolizing that there was a separation, that the separation wall between God and man had been removed. That because Jesus Christ died on our behalf, there can once again be fellowship between God and man. Now, if you were there seeing the supernatural events of what transpired that came along with Jesus dying, how would you react? What, how would you respond here, Luke will show four groups of people and how they responded to the death of Jesus that day. Perhaps some of us can identify with some of their responses. And let's see which is the appropriate response. The first response is found in verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. The first reaction that Luke recounts was that of the centurion, the commander of the guards who had nailed Jesus to the cross. When he saw the supernatural events that surrounded Jesus' death, the centurion acknowledged that Jesus was indeed a righteous man. He was innocent. Now for me, it's a bit interesting that Luke stops here. We simply don't know what happened to this man. Does he come to know Jesus Christ? As his personal savior, does he change in any way? Perhaps Luke doesn't give us more detail because he wants to show the response of so many who were there that day. It was, number one, a response that acknowledged the death of Jesus. Acknowledging, acknowledgement. That's the response of so many. We simply acknowledge Christ's death. Now you see, that's a wonderful thing. And it's good that there is acknowledgement. But if it stops there, if it's simply acknowledgement, then it is a response that is inadequate. We can acknowledge and affirm that Jesus Christ died for the entire world, that he died for us. But if that truth doesn't somehow impact our lives, acknowledgement by itself is a response that is inadequate. And in verse 47, an acknowledgement that Jesus was innocent and yet... We don't know if there is a life change on the part of this centurion. We hope so, but we simply are not told. We acknowledge his death today, and we often do it throughout the year. 
And we even do so when we glorify God in songs of praise and worship through songs like the old rugged cross. We sing hymns like near the cross. Jesus is all the world to me. We acknowledge what he did. It is a mental ascent. We know what he did. And yet, if there is no transformation of person, if those songs are simply sung without any transformation of person, therefore, it is an inadequate response. It's like if you were in a room and an important person walks in, you either nod your head to acknowledge them, or you bow to acknowledge that someone of importance has entered into the room. But that physical acknowledgement is just that. It is an acknowledgement. It, it doesn't carry with it the true sense of appreciation, because oftentimes that acknowledgement is superficial. The heart and action may not follow that acknowledgement. Many years ago, when I first came to the Philippines, I loved speaking at the high school chapel of our school. I wrote home and I told them how wonderful it is to speak at the high school chapel. And you know what was the best part? The best part was at the beginning. Can you imagine to have 1,200 high schoolers bow to you and tell you good morning? It's good to see you. I thought this was awesome. I wrote home. I said, I've never had a teenager bow to me before, but it feels great. I've learned otherwise. I know they did it because they were forced to do it. It was perfunctory. It was superficial. They do it, but it doesn't mean they respect you. The heart and the action are very different. Acknowledgement as a response is a good thing, but if left simply at that, it is an inadequate response. The second group, look at verse 48. And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast, and return. We now have a picture of the second group of people who were there when Jesus died. They had gathered in the place where Jesus was crucified. They saw what was done to Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they began to beat their chest. Now, what in the world does that signify? In those days, the act of beating one's chest is symbolic of their sympathy and empathy towards what had happened to the person. It's like our modern day when someone beats their chest and says, I feel you. I understand. It's an it's a, it's a action of solidarity. I get you. I understand. I feel for you. There they saw poor Jesus suffering so unjustly in the hands of those ruthless Romans. And they beat their chest in sympathy and in solidarity. We feel you, Jesus. And note what the Bible tells us happened after they did that, verse 48. And then they went home. They went home. You see, this second group represents a second type of response to the death of Jesus. Number two, sympathizing. Sympathy. I'm sure that day, around all of the crosses that lined the way, the respective family members and friends of the people around the crosses had probably come also to sympathize with them. Perhaps some of those who were on the crosses that day were also unjustly crucified like Jesus. And there their family and friends had come to beat their chests and to sympathize with them. 
for them to understand what a terrible tragedy had befallen them. But then they would all go home. What could they do? Sympathy in response to Jesus' death is insufficient. There has to be more that is done. And we do it all the time. We sympathize with tragic events. But we think that is the be-all, end-all. That's good enough. How many of you, when you see tragedy strike on the news or on television or on social media, are you moved to action? We may read about a story or listen to a news segment about something horrific that has happened. And we may feel very sorry for them. In fact, we may share the story with someone else so that our friends and our family can also feel sorry for whatever a person is going through. But if that is the extent of it, then it is sorely inadequate. How many of you, when you watch a news segment or read a story, are moved to reach to your wallets and write a check or perhaps even write a note to encourage someone who has gone through a time of great disaster or a needing of encouragement? For many of us, the action of sympathizing is, is enough. We feel your pain, and that's simply it. We feel your pain. Just accept the fact that we feel your pain. If you just heard me say that, you would know that it's inadequate. The response is inadequate. I don't know if you heard the story last month of an 18-year-old named Milan Skiffer of Holland. And I love the story. Uh, it's a story that went viral last month. He was planning a vacation to Australia before starting college. And he had saved up money to go to Australia. And so, like many of the young people of our generation, he went online to book his flight to Sydney. He found one flight costing him 800 euros. And he noticed that it was substantially cheaper than other flights to Sydney costing 1,000 euros. And, of course, he chose the cheapest ticket. He booked the flight and got ready for the sun and the surf of sunny Australia. Well, Skiffer found himself staring out instead at a snow-covered frozen landscape. You see, what happened was that Skiffer had accidentally booked the flight to Sydney, Nova Scotia in Canada, a town of 32,000 people instead of the metropolis that was Sydney, Australia. He flew to Canada instead of Australia. When they interviewed him in Toronto... And they asked him, when did you begin to realize that you were going to the wrong place? He said he began to worry he had made a mistake during a stopover here in Toronto. When he glimpsed the plane lined up for the final leg of his flight. And he said to himself, this plane is really small. Would it make it all the way to Australia? Well, when he flew back to Holland, his father came to fetch him at the airport. And the reporters asked him, how was that interaction Skiffer said, he felt really sorry for me, my father did. But he also added, he also laughed an awful lot, just like everyone else. Based on the social media interaction with the story, I knew that a lot of people really felt bad for him. And if you had read the story, you would feel very bad, especially for a college student who had saved up money to go to his ideal vacation destination. And many of them posted notes of support, and if they could help, they would help him. 
And if you were in his shoes, you would feel bad because perhaps it's something that would have happened to you. Well, Schaefer thought it'd be a great idea to mobilize this compassion for me. And so he started a GoFundMe page so that he could have money to go to Australia, the correct one, the correct city in Australia, because there were so many people who felt so bad for him. All he needed was 2,500 euros. Imagine just 2,500 people giving one euro from the millions that saw his story and felt sympathy for him, and he would be able to accomplish his goal. Well, at 4 o'clock yesterday, I checked his GoFundMe page, and as of yesterday at 4 p.m., he had only raised 260 euros well short of 2,500 euros. So if you were moved by the story, you're more than welcome to fly him to Sydney, Australia. I doubt any of you would. I hope you get my point. You may feel sorry for a person. You may feel great sympathy for them. But if you are not moved to action, then sympathy is an inadequate response. And the group that empathized with Jesus that day, the Bible tells us they went home. Look at verse 49 with me. Look at the third reaction. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The third response was from a group. And this was a group of his closest friends who had traveled from up north in Galilee to be with him in Jerusalem. And what were they doing? This is the most shocking they were standing afar, simply watching. And their response, number three, was just observing. They were just observing. They were just watching. In view of the significance of the death of Jesus, what were they doing? They were just watching. Watching the events unfold. I know some of them were probably scared. But does that justify them being so distant on the death of their beloved leader's death? Why does Luke include this third response to the death of Jesus? Because I think it's because so many Christians are like that, especially long-time Christians. They just stand at a distance and they observe they don't do anything as it relates to action in response to the death of Jesus. They just stand back and they watch. The death of Jesus Christ doesn't affect them. Another Holy Week, another Easter gone by, another reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know these stories. And so they either tune out or they don't show up to church. It's interesting that David experienced something similar and he writes in Psalm 38, verse 11, echoing a similar experience as he was going through a time of pain. He writes in Psalm 38, verse 11, My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. We have a tendency to simply watch. That's all we do. We just watch. We observe. If you don't believe that you like to watch, how many of you have experienced this? If there's an accident on the road, like our main highway, you know that if there's an accident, traffic behind is going to pile up and it's going to be slow going. 
And we know that because if there's an accident, it takes up one or two of the lanes. But there's still some open lanes, and traffic shouldn't be moving this slowly. But you know why traffic is so slow behind an accident? And I'm sure you've done this before. What happens as you're driving your car and you get to the side of the accident? What do you do? You slow down. You slow down, and as you pass this accident, you want to see what happened. You begin to watch. You begin to observe. It's as if you're saying, it's my turn to watch. I've been waiting a long time to see what happened. And you're hoping it's before they took away the bodies. Uh, you, You want all the fire trucks to be there. You want all the ambulances to be there. You know that feeling, although it's a terrible feeling, that when you get to the front and it's already been cleared... You didn't see anything. You waited so long, you didn't see anything. It's kind of funny, isn't it? That we get to that accident spot. We think, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. We all want to watch. We all want to see. Observing. Witnessing. That's what these people were doing. And this is an inadequate response to Jesus' death. Imagine, this is the group that is closest to him. And yet, as Luke puts them, they are the farthest away from Jesus. The one who doesn't know them, the the one who doesn't know Jesus is the one who's closest, which is a centurion who's right at the foot of the cross, followed by some sympathizers who were near him. And then the closest of his friends, who should have been the nearest, they were so far away, they were just watching, observing. This is a picture of longtime Christians Believers who only come to the church, perhaps, just to be here, to be in attendance. And to do what? To observe other people's life transformation. To hear other people's story. To see how others can change. Nothing about them. And these are the type of people who sit in the back, and as the pastor is preaching, they're nodding their heads, but not in agreement They're nodding their heads because they hope that their enemy is listening to the message. I hope they are moved. I hope they hear it. Let me ask you this. When you get home today and you're driving to the restaurant, wherever you're eating, or you're driving home, how many of you in your cars have turned around and asked your children, what did you learn today in Sunday school? What did you learn I think very few parents ever begin with, children, can I share with you what I learned at church today? It's always, children, what did you learn? What did you learn as if they needed to learn something because they went to Sunday school? Well, why doesn't it begin with you? Why doesn't it begin, what did I learn? To model to them that when exposed to the gospel message, it calls us to more than just observing something. I want you to think about that. And now Luke turns to the fourth response. Look at verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. To our surprise, Luke introduces a man whose name appears for the first time in the Gospel of Luke. A a man named Joseph of Arimathea, 
a member of the Jewish religious high council called the Sanhedrin. And if you remember, this was the same council that met illegally and secretly to condemn Jesus of blasphemy and therefore deserving of death. And notice that Luke tells us that Joseph did not agree with the council's decision and did not agree with their actions because he was a man seeking for truth, a man who was somehow affected by the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. But something about Jesus' death spurred him into action. He could no longer sit idly by when Jesus died. For him, the death of Jesus was the last straw that broke the camel's back that caused him to put his own life on the line, to not care about how his colleagues on the council thought about him, not caring how others would perceive him, He was transformed in his heart towards action. And this is what he did. Look at verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. Somehow when Jesus died, it spurred Joseph of Arimathea to walk straight to Pilate. And perhaps cashing in his political influence, he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, a body that no one wanted, Jesus' closest friends standing so far apart. And with such care, the Bible tells us in verse 53, he laid Jesus in his own tomb. You know, Joseph was so moved by the death of Jesus that he just had to give Jesus an honorable burial. You know, sometimes we forget that it required someone to take Jesus down from the cross, to pull out his nails from his hands and his feet, to prepare the wounds and to wrap him. You know who it was? It was Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. That's what verse 53 says. Joseph, this man of prominence, went to the side of the cross and he himself took that body of Jesus, pulled the nails from his hand and feet, bandaged the wound, prepared it for burial. He was the mortician that day. When everyone else rushed out, There was only two that rushed in. One was Joseph. The other in John chapter 19 was Nicodemus, a fellow member of the Sanhedrin who had gone to Jesus to talk to him at night. These are the two men, two individuals you would least expect to rush in to help Jesus because they were men of prominence. They were men of leadership. They were men in the community who had a reputation to uphold. But they were men whose lives were somehow so transformed by the death of Jesus Christ that they had to honor Jesus in his earthly burial. Perhaps when Jesus died, so unfairly and unjustly treated, that they wondered if they should have spoken up more at the council. If they should have been more adamant that the council's actions and decisions were unjust. But whatever the case, not now. When Jesus died, they realized it was time to act. 
It wasn't enough for them that they acknowledged what happened. It wasn't enough that they sympathized with Jesus to observe what was happening that day. They had to do something. And their response, the fourth response of transformation in their heart towards action is the proper response to the death of Jesus Christ. A response of a transformation of life towards action is what we as believers need to have in response to the death of Jesus Christ. We should be so moved by what happened to Jesus that it spurs us to action. It spurs us to life change. To know that Jesus died in our place. You see, my friends, if someone puts their life out on the line for you, if that person saves you, literally saves you, I'm sure you would want to do something more than simply acknowledge them or to sympathize the hardship they had to go through to save your life. Or heaven forbid that you just simply sit back with quiet observation when they have come to save your life. I'm sure you would want the world, your community, your social network friends to know what they did and you would want to do more. And as we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this week, what is important is not just the observation of it, the observation of it. What is important is that there is transformation in our life in light of His death and resurrection. Jesus doesn't want us to put up more religious symbols. In many ways... He doesn't want you to go through the motions of coming to service on Easter. What he wants to see is a life that is changed, a life that is transformed into his likeness. That is the proper response to the death of Jesus. For too long, Christians have simply observed and sat back. For too long, Christians simply acknowledge what happened, but what happened doesn't affect them. For too long, we sympathize with his pain. We know what he's going through, and yet it doesn't change us. My friends, if that is indicative of your life, it is an inadequate response to the death of Jesus. The transformation of your life, a transformation towards Christ-likeness, a transformation towards action, is the proper response to Jesus dying on the cross for you and me. He who died in our place, he who saved us, deserves the proper response from us. I pray this morning that our church would respond properly pray that our church would not simply go through the motions of going through another Easter, another Holy Week, without a proper response of life transformation. May that be the case this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for reminding me also even as a pastor who has seen lives transformed in a mighty way, I need to look at myself and see if the death of Christ has gotten old in my life. 
It bears no meaning. And forgive me if you saving me is something I take for granted. What a wonderful opportunity this Holy Week affords us to remind us, each one of us, that we who are deserving of death had someone die in our place. And for that, we want the world to know. We want to properly respond. We want to celebrate and commemorate your life in ours. And I know nothing would make you more happy that if you see the lives of each man and each woman here this morning transformed towards action to be more like you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.